from you and to you and through you and for you. Everything, including our breath, and we just... God, please, please help us this morning. (laughs) Please help us. We thank you so much that we get to gather and that we get to worship you. We thank you for commanding us to do this in your word. Because there's nothing like being with your people in your presence. And singing with all of our might to you. We love you. Please have your way this morning, Father. Have your way. In the name of Jesus, I pray this. Amen. Good morning. You can have a seat. God is good. Amen. Amen. Yep. Everybody was wondering. No matter how impossible it is, the fire of God is enough. Amen. Good word, Alan. Thank you. Amen. Nothing is too difficult for him. Amen? Nothing. What was that beep? Good? Okay. So at the same time, my phone started buzzing like crazy. Please silence your cell phones. Um, and then I heard this beep, and I was like, I don't know what's, what's happening. Okay. Amen. Genesis, <laughs> Genesis chapter 2. Please go there. Um, 
I'm going to jump right in and get going here and just read all 25 verses. So I'll start and you can catch up. Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done and rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. (coughs) These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God had planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Hivalia where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gahan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die." Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought him to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall hold fast to his wife, and, they shall, and the two shall become one flesh." And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let me pray one more time. Father, help us now. um, And please open the eyes of our heart that we could see wonderful things from your word. I pray that your spirit would take these truths this morning and that you just, just press them. Press them deep into our heart. And remind us of who we are as the creature and not the creator. And show yourself strong on our behalf. We thank you that you love to flex your might on behalf of the weak and those that are helpless. And that's who we are here this morning, Lord. And if we think otherwise, I pray that you would remind us of that too. We love you and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So just want to pick up right kind of where we left off last week, looking at Genesis chapter 1, and the two kind of big ideas that I threw out there last week um, were that God is creator and we are creature, and that God has, 
intended for his creation to flourish or to be fruitful. And one of the ways that he does this is by bringing form into our lives. And so he, he formed you know, the earth, he separated the light from the darkness, and he separated the water from the dry land. And um, as he began to give that form and order and structure to it um, and arrange things the way he wanted it, it was set up for life to flourish. And um, there's some more ideas here in Genesis chapter 2 um, big ideas that really speak to who we are as creature. That in order for us to flourish, we have to embrace the fact that we, again, are the created and he alone is the creator. That God has woven, even before sin entered the world, we're not just weak because of sin. Sin is a massive weakness and um, it's even more than a weakness, it's an actual evil that we've partaken in, each and every one of us from Adam and Eve on, after they fell. But we were actually created in the beginning, even in perfection, in Genesis 1 and 2. I mean, there's 1,189 chapters in the Bible. Like, four of them don't have sin in them. Genesis 1 and 2 and the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. The rest of it is all, is all a mess, and God is moving it back to that perfection um, that we see then at the, book, at the end of the book of Revelation. Um, but we have to embrace what God says about us as creature, and that means embracing our weaknesses. And there are things um, in this chapter, in chapter two, that uh, are, they're, they're super, 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 super important. They're like, um, this isn't a real technical term, but they're, they're like mega themes, mega themes that you'll see all throughout the scripture. And understanding these themes really helps us to understand who we are um, as his creatures, because unless we embrace our weakness, we are never going to flourish as God intends and as we talked about last week. And I want us to get this, because guys, it does not matter. Your flourishing and your fruitfulness is not dependent on who's in control politically. It doesn't matter who's in the White House or who's not in the White House. Even a, even a global pandemic and the coronavirus cannot stop the people of God from flourishing. Amen? It's not dependent on that. It's dependent on whether or not we embrace who we are as his creation and the way that he intended, intended things to be. And so I just want to run through these quick this morning. Each one of these in itself could not just be a sermon, but several sermons. So I'm going to try to give it to you um, as much as I can without going down too deep um, and keeping you here till five o'clock this evening. Um, but here's kind of the, the three ideas or mega themes, as I said, that are in this chapter. Um, one word each, they're rest, breath, and marriage. Rest, breath, and marriage. Rest, breath, and marriage. Major, major, major themes that you see running throughout the scriptures. First of all, this idea of rest, this idea of rest. First three verses of Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his works that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work that he had done. This is, this is the word for Sabbath that you're going to find later on. Now, um, if you're a thinking person, or you in, again, when you read the scriptures, you want to think and you want to ask questions and you want to look for tensions, there's a tension here that the, these verses present, and that is that what does it mean when God rested? Because God does not get tired, right? He doesn't get tired. 
Um, Isaiah chapter 40 says, Have you not known, have you not heard the Lord, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. He doesn't faint or grow weary. So what does this mean that God rested? Well, it's, it, here's the big idea that I want you to get in regards to rest. Rest is not so much the idea of uh, recuperation, like we kind of think about it, but it's more the idea of celebration and enjoyment. And it's just it very literally just the word Shabbat, the, that it, the Hebrew word there for rested, um, and it's, you know, whether we say Sabbath, it literally just means to cease, to stop. That God created everything that he created, and it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. That's the refrain we hear over and over again that we heard last week in chapter 1. And now he just stops, and he enjoys it. He celebrates it because, because it's perfect. And God calls us into this rest. Now, very quickly, as I've already mentioned, this is the same idea of the word for Sabbath, Okay, taking a, a, a Sabbath day, one, one day a week. This is a massive theme throughout the entire Bible. I'm going to try to run through it real quickly and show you that there's, there's different layers to this, okay? And they're all important and they're all good. There's a surfacey layer, and it's not that it's not important, but it's just not the depths of it. But you can drill down on this idea of rest. And as you drill down on this idea of rest is kind of the place where you'll find the fullest, truest, best rest that is absolutely possible. Let me show you a little bit about what I mean. So this idea of rest, of course, is actually one of the Ten Commandments. It's the fourth commandment in Exodus chapter 20, when God brings the nation of Israel out of Egypt, delivers them by the blood of the Lamb, the blood they put over the doorposts, brings them out, they plunder the Egyptians, he takes them to Mount Sinai, and he, Moses goes up on the mountain, and he gives them the Pentateuch, the, the Ten Commandments. And the fourth commandment is this in Genesis, or I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 20. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, on your livestock or the sojourner who is within the gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. So again, even in giving this command, God is going back to the original creation, okay? I would argue um, that it's not so much about the specific day anymore because Paul makes a reference in Colossians um, that we shouldn't get into arguments about the, the specifics of Sabbath days, but I would argue that if you work seven days a week and you don't have a day that's set aside not just to recuperate but also just to celebrate the goodness of God, you are living in sin, and for many of you here this morning, it might be the reason that you're not flourishing in the way that God intends is because you've forgotten who you are. You're the created, you're not the creator. And the created needs to rest. It's to remind us that we are not God. You are not God. I am not God. God alone, as we read out of Isaiah 40, is the only one who does not grow weary or faint in anything that he does. And so as God has brought, is now bringing these people out of slavery in Egypt where they had been working for 400 years, probably every day without, without a Sabbath, and he brings them and he brings them out now, he wants to remind them again of who they are and that he's called them to rest. And so on the service level, or, the, or the level number one, I should say, is that we need a day of rest, Okay. But rest is more than that. Rest is also used um, 
in the Bible for this idea of being in the place that God wants us to be and experiencing all of the fruitfulness that he has for us. And um, the, another place that this idea of rest is used is when God is actually taking the nation of Israel then into the promised land. So he brings them out of, out of Egypt to take them into the promised land that he intended for them. But of course, we know the story that they didn't go in right away because they didn't trust him. But over and over again in the Bible, that promised land is referred to as the place of Israel's rest, this place where they will find rest. Now, this is interesting because going into this place, there's going to be battles that they have to fight. There's going to be things they have, things they have to do, things, obediences that they have to walk in. But yet it's the place that, that God describes as rest. In Deuteronomy chapter 3, Moses says, referring to the promised land, he says, And I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over, armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Um, he says, and then he jumped down to verse 20, he says, Until the Lord God gives rest to you and your brothers on every side. In Joshua chapter 21, after Moses had died, after they'd wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, Moses dies, and then Joshua finally takes them in. In Joshua chapter 21, it says, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. So God had given them this this land as a place of rest, a place where he wanted them to be fruitful and to, and to flourish. Now, you with me? Okay, because the New Testament writer, writers pick up on this, okay? And in the, the book of Hebrews, and Hebrews, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but he was just a beast of a theologian. Um, I, he just takes these Old Testament themes and he just works them out and it's just absolutely amazing um, and it's beautiful. But he, he refers to the people of God um, going in and taking the promised land and is that of their place of rest as a metaphor for us going into the fruitful life that God has for us, okay? Um, and in Hebrews chapter 4, he says, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. He says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This is in Hebrews 4 from the New Testament. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For, now listen, for whoever has entered into God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Okay? So again, he's pointing back to the beginning of creation when God rested from his works, but again, not to recuperate, but to celebrate, to enjoy. And he's saying, yeah, God brought the nation of Israel out and you know, he commanded them to have a Sabbath and then he speaks of, of the promised land as a type of rest for them. But it's not just there. There remains a Sabbath rest for us, for the people of God for the New Testament church. But we have to cease from our works and begin to trust God. But then he says this, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. I love this, because it's such a paradox, and you're like, what, what does that mean? But it's awesome when you get it. He says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Now, do you see the tension? I thought, wait, do you, do you want me to strive or do you want me to rest? How, but how, I don't get how I'm supposed to strive to enter that rest. Did you hear that? Hebrews 4.11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. He goes on, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. 
Now earlier on, again, we don't have time to dig into all this, but earlier on what he just said at the end of chapter 3 of Hebrews, in the very beginning of chapter 4, is that the disobedience that the Israelites displayed when they originally came out and didn't go in to the promised land and ended up wandering for 40 years, the reason they didn't enter that rest right away, their disobedience was that they did not believe. They did not believe. And so here's what that means when he says, therefore let us strive to enter that rest. When he says strive, what he's talking about there is, let us strive to, listen, to just trust him. Just to trust him. Folks, I'm telling you, this is where the work is, and this is why many of us live lives that are unfruitful. Because we do not believe him. He has called us first and foremost. You know, Jesus was asked, he said, what must we do to do the works of God? Jesus said, the work of God is this, believe in the one he has sent. Belief in Jesus Christ, trusting in him, means that you, by necessity, if you're truly going to do that, means that you have to cease from your work, as God did from his. And you need to trust that what he has done is enough. And Jesus is the better Moses. He is the better Joshua. He's the one that truly brings us into the promised land. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your, do you know? Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So yeah, it was about a day. Yeah, it was about the Israelites going in and taking, taking the promised land. But the real rest that God wants us to get to is a rest for our souls. That every moment of every day as we trust in Jesus, we live in this rest that God has for us. That when you're worried, when you're anxious, when you're stressed out, when you're, as we talked about a few weeks ago, when you're seeking to take control, when you're trying to be something that you were never created to be, namely that would, a person who's in control, you are not living in the rest of God and you will not be fruitful and you will not flourish. But God desires for you to flourish. And in a couple ways, just very quickly, very practically, because again, I know I'm speaking in kind of this word picture and metaphor, but very practically, ways that we get rest wrong. Number one, we think that rest is always having more. We think that we can only have rest if we have more. Well, if I only had more time, if I had more money, if I had more vacations, if I had more freedom, then I'd be able to really rest. How many of you have ever gone on a vacation and can't come back and needed a vacation from your vacation? Yes? Oh, what's wrong with us? So many times. Get away, oh, it's going to be great. I'm going, I'm even going for a little more in a week. I'm going for 10 days and I come back and I'm exhausted. We don't know how to rest. Because we think that rest is, is somehow found in the natural, that if we could just have more abundance, if we just have more time, if we could just save up enough money and you know, buy an extra vacation home or that boat or whatever it is. And listen, if you've got a vacation home or a boat, that's great. I'd love to use them. Um, but, <laughs> please, but... Um, but that's not where it's found. Rest is found in setting God at the center. See, when, G, when, when God rested on the seventh day, back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, the reason he rested, verse 2, and on the seventh day, God, he finished it. 
So you've got to understand that the rest that God intends for you and ultimately intends for your soul, it's built upon a finished work. And notice again the repetition three times in two verses, verses 2 and 3 of Genesis chapter 2. It's finished, the finished work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from the work that he had done. Many of us are trying to find rest in things that we do. If we can just get more of whatever it might be, then we'll be able to rest. You're believing a lie. You're believing a lie. You will not find rest there. Another way we get the Sabbath wrong is we think it's about celebrating our accomplishments. It's not about celebrating our accomplishments. Well, you know, I'm just going to kind of reward myself. It's been a rough year, and, you know, but I've worked really hard and got a little extra. I'm just going to reward myself. Remember, it's true rest, it's, we, we do find recuperation in it because we're weak. But it's not about recuperation, it's about celebration. And I'll be honest with you folks, I don't want to burst your bubble, but nothing we do in and of ourselves is really worth celebrating. What God has done is worth celebrating. And if we'll just set him and his work at the center, we'll have something to celebrate. Another reason we don't understand rest, we don't cherish it. Again, back in Genesis chapter 2, God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. He made it holy. When something is holy, it means that it's set apart. It's to be cherished. It's to be honored. Do we honor the rest that God offers us? Not just on a natural level, but the rest that he offers us in Christ. Is it you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt this morning where you will spend all of eternity? That's incredible. That if you just receive the gift of God's Son, Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There never was. It's about what he accomplished and completed. And I want us to, I want us to be a people who more than ever, especially in this upcoming year, where so much is in upheaval, where we are people who truly understand what it means to exhibit the rest that God offers us. Amen? Not only rest, but breath. Breath. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. A living creature. So Genesis chapter 1 is kind of the big overview of all that God did on the first six days of creation. Then beginning of chapter 2, we get that God rested, okay, because he hadn't talked about the seventh day. Um, But now, in the rest of chapter 2, it zooms in back on that sixth day. And because man is the crown jewel of God's creation, it's not two different creation accounts, but in chapter 1, you kind of get the big overview, the headlines, and then in chapter 2, you get the details of how that happened, especially on the sixth day, because man is, the again, the, the crown jewel of God's creation. And he zooms in on this, and we see now that God, like he spoke so many other things into existence, and that's awesome, and it's crazy, and it's <laughs> only God can do that. But God didn't just speak man into creation, he formed him. And there's this idea of intimacy here, and personal knowledge and personal understanding. 
You know, David says that he was knit together in his mother's womb. Jeremiah said that, God says to Jeremiah, rather, that before you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. And you see God here forming man with his hands and then coming close to him and breathing into him. Breathing into him the breath of life. And then it says, and thus man became a living creature. That even though there could be all the outward form apart from that breath being breathed into man, he did not live. Now this idea of breath, again, on the natural level, each one of us, I'm telling you, it's from God. Every one of those is from God. Um, and he holds those in his very hand, he says in Daniel. But there's a deeper level here of breath too. And the, New Te- the inspired New Testament writers pick up on this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Okay, verses 42 through 49. Let me start there. Paul is talking about the resurrection and what our resurrection bodies will be like for those who have believed in Christ after we die. Um, what will happen when Christ comes back and we're raised with these new bodies. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 42, he says, So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, what is, is raised imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body also. Paul's saying like, we, we're not just flesh, we're not just a physical body, we're body, soul, and spirit. Verse 45, thus it is written, and he's referring back here now back to Gen- this verse we just read in Genesis 2-7, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The end of that. When did that happen? When God breathed into him the breath of life. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So he's going to begin to compare now Adam and Christ. Christ is often referred to in the New Testament as the second Adam, the better Adam, the perfect Adam, or the first Adam that we are all descendants of failed. That's why we have all failed in our sin. But we get victory and life in Christ. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, as we just read about. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, Adam, so also are those who are of the dust, all of us. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven, which is true, maybe not of all of us in this room, but of those of us who have believed in Christ. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, in other words, we've borne his image, we're passing away, we're all going to die. We also will bear the image of the man of heaven. That for those who have been born again, that when you're born again, God breathes into you, not natural breath, but the breath of his spirit, his Holy Spirit living inside of you. And just like at creation, when God breathed into Adam the breath of life and then he became alive, so also you are not alive spiritually unless the Holy Spirit is in you. You are not. And listen, I don't know anyone else's heart in here this morning, but God does. And in a crowd this size, there are probably those of you, I'm sure, that are here this morning and you have the Spirit of God in you. He's breathed into you the breath of life. And he's caused you to love Jesus. 
and to want to pursue him. But I'm sure that there are some in here this morning who you come to church, you call yourself a Christian, but the very life of God is not in you. It is nothing that you can do. You cannot breathe into yourself the breath of life. You cannot breathe into your natural body, into your natural soul, the supernatural breath of the Spirit. It is a miracle that only God can do, but He will do it if you will just turn to Him. If you will turn away from your own uh, power and pursuits and trust in Him. In John chapter 20, kind of a little cryptic verse, there's a lot of argument about what this means. I want to give you my kind of take on it. Um, John chapter 20, Jesus has now risen from the dead. He appears to the disciples who are behind locked doors in an upper room because they're freaked out, not sure what's going on. In John chapter 20, verses 21 and 22, Jesus shows up and he says this. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Listen, and when he had said this, he breathed on them. He breathed on them. And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the, um, the quandary comes up is that we see that later on in the book of Acts seems to be the place where the Spirit comes like a rushing mighty wind and really comes upon them. And, um, and from there on then, they're not afraid. They're, they're not hiding behind locked doors anymore. And they're empowered and they go out and they become these powerful witnesses um, as Jesus had told them that they would be. And so everybody kind of wonders, well, what, what's going on here? Like, did they kind of receive the Holy Spirit here? Then they got it again later or what, what's happening? And I think it kind of misses the point. If you remember John's gospel, how does John chapter 1 start out? Do you remember? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John chapter 1 refers to Genesis chapter 1, right? So John frames his whole deal kind of in light of Jesus being this new creation, that's going to bring about new creation in us because we need to create it again because we're all dead in our sin. And I think that it's a theme that John has. I think John's point in sharing this verse, I mean, I do believe something actually happened there when Jesus said that to him and said, receive the Holy Spirit. But the point is, again, is that I think John wants us to remember back to Genesis chapter 2 when God breathed into Adam the breath of life. Is that Jesus now, the resurrected Christ, after he'd gone through death, and he appears again, he, John's just wanting to communicate to us. He's saying, Jesus is the second Adam. He's making a new creation. And only by him breathing his breath of the Holy Spirit on you can you have life. Make sense? And guys, I want to I press us a little bit on this. I, I really felt like this morning in prayer, this was something the Lord just wanted me to pause at this point and just kind of share about a little bit. I... I, I don't know how else to say this. It might sound kind of simplistic, but I, guys, I want us to understand the reality of the Holy Spirit. We need to understand the utmost importance of pursuing God's presence. And when God's presence isn't in something, when His Spirit isn't in something, when His Spirit is not there, it's just death. Try as you may, you're not going to be able to make anything happen. 
But if his presence is there, and if his presence is in you and in whatever you're pursuing, it can't be stopped. You guys remember one of the, uh, one of the first worship songs I ever learned. I, I grew up in a little Baptist church. We sang hymns. I praise God for the hymns. I like the hymns. But when I really began to follow the Lord and I began to you know, hear about this praise and worship music stuff, one of the first songs I ever learned and heard, I learned to play on guitar because it was literally like two chords. It was just G and C and back and forth, really easy. Anyway, but it was the song Breathe. Do you remember the song? This is the air I breathe. Do you remember that? Yeah. 2001, I think that came out. This is the air I breathe, your holy presence living in me. They were picking up, I think Marie, Mary, Marie Barnett wrote the song. This idea of the breath of God being the spirit of God. But the chorus to that song. And I, I'm desperate for you. Remember that? Oh, and I, I'm lost without you. Again, as simple as that may sound, guys, be honest with you, I don't know how desperate we are. How desperate are you for the presence of the Holy Spirit to manifest His life in your life. Christianity is not difficult. It is impossible. And because of this, God has graciously sent his Holy Spirit. And when we gather together on Sunday mornings, guys, I, want us, I really want us to understand that like a little bit ago when we were singing songs, we're not just singing songs you know this? We're not just mouthing words. We're not here to honor him with our lips, but have our hearts be far from him. That he created us body, soul, and spirit, and then he breathed into us when we're born again, his spirit, living in our spirit, so that we could worship him in spirit and in truth. And when we gather together to sing, it's about coming together and interacting with the very presence, the Spirit of God. And this is the thing that's supposed to mark us as a people. It's not just what we know. It's not just head knowledge. It's not just academic facts and information. And in fact, I'm a, well, let, let's go there. This isn't in my notes, but, but the tree of the two trees. Look at the next couple of verses in Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, a little bit of spoiler alert. We're going to get into this next week. We know that in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve fall. Why? Because they choose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You've got to get this, because these were real trees. This really happened, but it is a powerful picture of our lives is that we think the thing that is going to make us whole is more knowledge, more information, more facts, more learning. And that is not what brings life. What brings life is the Spirit of God. All the knowledge that Adam and Eve were ever going to need was to be given to them 
through an intimate relationship with Christ. This is why in the New Testament, you've heard me say this before, but the word for knowledge in the Greek that is used over and over again in the New Testament, like 80% of the time, is the Greek word gnosko. It is not just a head knowledge. It's not, a, it's not knowledge like I know math or, or, or I know, you know the names of the players on the Browns team or, or, or whatever like that. It's, it's, it's experiential knowledge. It's the difference between knowing math and knowing your wife, knowing a person. And it's that type of knowledge, that intimate relational knowledge that we were made to thrive on, that we were made to flourish on, that we were made to be fruitful by. Not head knowledge, but we have traded it. In our sin, we constantly go after more earthly knowledge. The the, the knowledge that, that James says, or the wisdom that James says is from below, and it's earthly, natural, and demonic. There's a wisdom that's from above, James says, but that wisdom doesn't just come through facts and information. Or even, and, and hear me here, or even just reading really good theology books. It comes from intimacy with Christ. How much time did you spend this past week in intimacy with Christ? Fellowshipping with Him just because He's awesome. Not because you just wanted something. Not because you just wanted him to fix the situation. Although he can, and he will, and he's a good shepherd, and he'll care for you. Over and over and over and over again, we run to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Thinking that it's somehow going to save us, and it won't. Guys, I want us to be desperate for his presence in 2021. Amen? The world does not need more churches that are filled with head knowledge. The world needs churches that are filled with his presence and that live in the power of it. How much time do I have left? I'm going to keep going. I might keep you here until 5 o'clock. Marriage. Rest, breath, and marriage. So Adam and Eve here... um, Verse 18, if you're a careful reader and would have been reading Genesis 1 and 2, verse 18 should absolutely jump off the page. Why? Because this is before sin ever comes into play. And verse 18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is what? It is not good that man should be alone. The refrain up to this point has been, It is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. Now he says it is not good that man should be alone. God intentionally created something inside Adam that was not yet complete. And it was part of his perfect plan to do so. He didn't mess up. He did it on purpose. To create, he thought that it was good. It was better to create a longing in the heart of Adam, in the heart of man, for something outside of himself to make him, to make him complete. And this is really important and it's really beautiful because we think that, that if we're perfect, if we're complete, if we're whole, then we don't need anybody. We're just going to be truly independent. If I'm mature, I can just, I'm that lone wolf, baby. John Rambo going in, Chuck Norris, going in and getting all the, I don't know why I'm throwing Rambo and Chuck Norris movies out, but. You know, whole armies can't get, get them back, but Chuck Norris will go in by himself and take out all the bad guys. That's me. It's not you. <laughs> it's not any of us. 
Part of God's perfect plan was to make us relationally dependent. And this isn't just for marriage, but marriage is the pinnacle of this. Marriage is the one place that it has been formalized, and we see this um, in a very clear way. And again, ultimately comes back to a picture of us, of us in the church. church. Um, and God wants Adam to feel this. If you look at verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so you'd think then the next verse would be, and so God made Eve and gave him to her, but he doesn't. The first thing he lets him do is he, he like tells him, I, it, it's not good for you to be alone. I'll make you a helper. Now, verse 19, now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So, this isn't good. It's part of his plans, but it's not good. I'm going to fix it, but not yet. First, I'm going to have you name all the animals. Now, this would have taken a while, right? It's just Adam. You know, it's not like he has a team. It's like, okay, you, you guys name these guys over here. I'll name these guys over here. You name, like, just bringing them through. So God creates this longing in the heart of man, and then he lets him sit in it for a little bit. He wants him to feel it. And guys, God in his sovereignty, he will take you through seasons where he lets you feel that you weren't meant to do it alone. Have you ever been there? He'll take you through seasons where if you're walking, you think you can just handle everything on your own. He'll let you feel that, the weakness of that, and maybe the failure of that. Verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So God wants to make it abundantly clear to Adam that there is no one else perfect for him. So he brings everything else that he'd made before him so that Adam feels it. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be taken out of woman because she, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Did you notice the first words out of Adam's mouth the first time he sees Eve? At last. At last. God lets him go through a season of longing, but he goes through the longing because then he gets to say, at last, I found the one that was made, that was made for me. Now, this picture of marriage is massive. In many ways, here in Genesis chapter 2, the Bible starts with a wedding and it ends with a wedding. In Revelation chapter 19, says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The bride is the church, and it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. 
In Ephesians chapter 5, listen to how Paul just weaves back and forth between talking about marriage between a man and a woman and talking about marriage between Christ and the church. Ephesians chapter 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Verse 31, now he's going to quote from Genesis, he's going to, chapter 2, he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then the next verse, verse 32 of Ephesians chapter 5, he says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. That all the way back at the beginning of creation, this picture that we see here of Adam and Eve, it is about Adam and Eve. God does care for Adam, and it wasn't good for man to be alone. And so in love, he gives him a helper. But it's not just about Adam and Eve. It's a picture all the way back then, a shadowy picture that we don't get fully till later, till the New Testament was written. It's a, but it's a picture of Christ in his church. And I don't, this is a deep, well, Paul says there, verse 32, this mystery is profound. This mystery is very profound for this reason. Jesus Christ is very God of very God. Perfect in every way. Doesn't need anything. Didn't need us. Yet, God purposed that it was better for his son to have a bride. And so just like God made Adam fall asleep, God caused Christ, the second Adam, to fall into the deep sleep of death. And when he did, a spear that was held by a sinful soldier but was ultimately wielded by God the Father, was plunged into his side. And blood and water flowed out from Christ's side. And just like the bride Eve was taken from Adam's side, so also that blood and that water are enough to wash any sinner of their filth and to clothe them with the righteousness of Christ if you will just turn to him and believe. And this marriage story continues on because in his first coming he purchased for himself a bride, all those who would believe, the church. And to this very day, right now, this morning, even as we meet, our great bridegroom, Jesus Christ, is waiting in heaven for the day when his father, just like the father presented Eve to Adam, when his father is going to present his bride, the church, to him. And we will be clothed in white. And here's what's amazing, is as much as our sin has caused us shame, because of what our 
perfect husband has done for us, we will stand before him clothed in white and be unashamed. I don't know about you, but when I think about the depths of my sin, and I think about what Christ had to do to save me, but not just save me, to let me stand before him shameless, unashamed, not guilty, clothed in white, even though at times I continue to run back to the mud and roll around in it. I just stand in awe. I just stand in absolute awe. And again, guys, what Christ has done for us, what God has purposed for his people from the very beginning is absolutely amazing. It's incredible. Worship to me and come up and we'll close. Just bow your heads with me. I'll make this short as we close here. Close your eyes. I just would ask you this morning, how has the Holy Spirit been talking to you? What do you feel him speaking to your heart this morning as we've meditated together upon his word? Um, Is there anything in your life this morning that's keeping you from rest? What's in your life that's keeping you from enjoying the fullness of the rest that God has for you? Maybe you've been trying to rest on your own or rest celebrating your own work or rest thinking that you need more. You don't need more. What you need is to just set Christ at the center. He's the only one that will give rest to your soul. How desperate are you this morning for his presence? How desperate desperate are you for his spirit, the very breath of God in you? We don't need more information, guys. We need transformation. And that transformation only comes from the spirit of God. And lastly, too, I just want to throw this out there. I know it might be kind of a big thing to just throw out there and then just kind of be done, but, but I want you to think about it. If you're here this morning and you're married, I want you to think about your marriage and where there might be tension, where there might be issues, where there might be some disunity. I wonder if the issue in your earthly marriage isn't really the issue. I wonder if it's just a manifestation of the real issue, which is that you are not having, you're not prioritizing rest and intimacy with your real bridegroom. This is for both men and women, and men, I know it's hard for us to kind of think of ourselves as the bride sometimes, but 
You can do it. Is Christ your all in all? Does he have first place in your life? Usually, marriages are in trouble because they've forgotten who they're truly made for, which is Christ. And I just want to encourage you this morning, both men and women, to come back to that relationship, to trust him. And even if you're, if you're single in here this morning, it's a gift that God has for you right now in this season. Uh, maybe for always. And that's okay because Christ is enough. He's absolutely enough. Father, I just pray that you take these truths, God, and again, Lord, that you'd press them deep into our hearts. And God, I don't know how each one here needs to respond this morning, but I just pray that we'd obey you. I pray that we begin by trusting you. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. God, we love you. We stand in awe of you. And, and I pray that even now, Lord, as we just, we're just going to sing one more song, that we wouldn't just mouth words, but that we'd be pursuing your presence, desperate for your presence. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You guys stand with me.